right, you can be seated this morning. And uh, I want you to give a big welcome to a dear friend of ours, Mama Bertha. Bertha Hall, some of you know her as. She has a special day. Uh, yesterday was my 80th birthday. All right. And I thank God for every second of those 80 years. Yeah. So I wanted to interview her uh, today, our message. We're talking about who is Jesus. And I was uh, telling the prayer circle, you know, when you get a topic like this and you know the majority of the people in the room are Christians, it's kind of like your flesh is like, ah, man, everybody already knows that answer. But then when you just get a, a little wake up to reality, the Bible says that Jesus, one of the titles given to Jesus is he is the indescribable gift. What does that mean? That you might at salvation know him as your savior mm -hmm. and you could serve him up until you're 80 years old faithfully or 100 or 120. Jesus continues to be more and more and more. And so by the time I was, you know, five minutes into the sermon, by the time I was done, uh, I was so excited to bring this word today. And I wanted uh, Bertha to share just a little of her story. Uh, when it comes to the person of Jesus, uh, how old were you when you made a real decision to follow him? And, and what led to that decision? I was age 12 and a half. I grew up in a Christian home. We had to go to church, Sunday school, BTU. And I always enjoyed it. It was never uh, make me go. You know, I always wanted to be around Christians and especially the older women in the, singing in the choir with them. So I grew up knowing that he existed. But at age 12, my mother said, I'm no longer carrying your sins. At this point, mm -hmm. you need to accept Christ for yourself because now you make the decision and you have to ask for forgiveness. Yeah. And so I, um, we had a revival back in the day. You didn't just come and walk down the aisle to join church. You had one time per year in August that they ran what they call revivals and that was your opportunity to give your life to Christ. Can you imagine today having one week per year in August, the hottest month of the year in Arkansas, to give your life to Christ? Yeah, but you can't get saved yet. It's not August. You're going to have to wait 11 months. You can't come yeah. down here. Yeah, yeah. But I thank God that my mother gave me a choice. Mm -hmm. You will now have to ask for forgiveness. And I remember the day distinctly. It was a Thursday, mm -hmm. and I'll never forget. When you have been changed, mm -hmm. you don't have to tell anybody. Come on. People who knew me before would say to my mom, Gracie, she's changed. Mm -hmm. I know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus met me that Thursday night and delivered me yeah. and saved me so that I would be here today. Yes. Now, you know what I love about this? So here you are 68 years later and still emotional about it. This is, 
This is uh, one of the greatest testaments to the fact that when we received Christ, we didn't receive a religion, but we did receive a life-transforming relationship. And one of the things that's said about God, I think it was C.S. Lewis, called God the great iconoclast, which means the image breaker. And that can be described kind of this way. So maybe God gives us an image of himself at 12 and a half years old, like Here's Jesus to me then. But because we go from glory to glory and we learn more about him and he meets us in various stages of our life and things that you faced at 12 years old, all of a sudden you're, you're 25, 30, and you face things you never dreamed of. And so you get to experience Jesus in a new way. And not that he shatters the old image he gave you at 12 and a half, but sometimes he will de-emphasize that and give you a a fresh vision of who he is. And so I'd love to hear just who is Jesus at 80 that maybe you didn't know at 12 and a half? I know now that he's a healer. Mm. I didn't know that even though I had been ill. I just knew that I was healed. But as I got in my 20s, I had a major illness, should not be living today. So he healed me, delivered me. And through the years, I've seen him do miracles um, that the doctors have no answer for. They just know that I came in one way, but I left another way. And so God has done some mighty works in my life. That's so good. Come on, you can give God praise for that. So... Let me ask one last question here, and I know this is just a snippet, and uh, I'm sure you could talk for hours Mm. of all the things that God has done in your life, but, you know, I see folks that come in, maybe their motive for receiving Christ isn't the right motive. A lot of people come down to the altar, or they receive Christ because they want to feel happier, or they want to escape some mental torment, or they want to get out of a a jam, and and maybe Jesus is kind of the band-aid to that. I feel like folks that receive that gospel or believe that Jesus, man, when the going gets tough, they end up falling off. Kind of in John 6, 66, there was a group of disciples that mm-hmm. left Jesus That's when he, when he kind of like laid out, he defined the relationship. And uh, here you are 80. So you've had a lot of opportunities to see pain. Mm-hmm. You've had a lot of times where your faith has been tested and you have enough experience to have been able to bail on this thing. Why are you still following Jesus um, after going through the gamut of what life can throw at you? Just for the person that needs encouragement. Um, there is no other friend like Jesus. Yeah. No matter what I've been through, he has always been there. Mm. And without him, some of the things I've faced even within the church, if I wasn't sold out, I wouldn't be on this stage today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But because I knew him as a personal savior, a deliverer, a healer, no matter what comes my way, I'm steadfast anchored to the solid rock, which is Jesus Christ, my Lord. Yes, awesome, awesome. So before, before we let you off stage, um, I'm going to have you pray for us. And uh, we, we started our Alpha series. And if you didn't hear Liz, she said, hey, 
If you didn't join uh, last Wednesday, you can still plug in. There's a, uh, a ladies alpha, which is Wednesday mornings in University Place at Olympic View Baptist. Um, there's a youth alpha that is Wednesday night at 7 p.m. And then there's a, an adult alpha that's 6.30 p.m. Uh, at uh, Olympic View Baptist. And this is just a eight-week, no-pressure uh, course on exploring your faith. And we had a phenomenal turnout. Um, I, I left so encouraged, and it wasn't just believers that showed up, but there was a lot of people that were um, not, not serving the Lord or searching or trying to find out who Jesus was, folks that don't go to church. And I just felt the smile of God. But what we're believing for is that this same love that Bertha has for the Lord Jesus, that that love would be so deep in this congregation that we would not be able to stop the call within us to go reach more people. If we've been saved, it is our obligation then to find someone else and invite them to see and know Jesus for themselves. So can you pray that God would just help us be a church that cares for the lost? Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, I thank you for this body of believers. Yes, Lord. For redeem, Lord, for the name itself means that you have saved us and redeemed us. And Lord, help us to go forth and to reach out to the unbelievers and to this lost world and seek to save that which is lost. So God, we pray that the anointing mm. of the Holy Spirit will fall upon yes. this body, God, that they would be just excited about what you're going to do, Lord. Yes. But you're not going to come down and do anything. It's through us, Lord, mm -hmm. through our reaching out that you would meet the need of this country, through this uh, group of people that are in this place can go out into the highways and the byways, God. You compelled us to go and to compel them to come. Yes. And Lord, give us holy boldness to know that some plant some water, but God, you and you only give the increase. The increase. So Lord, we thank you for increase today. Yes. We thank you for redeem for what we are going to do with your help. We're going to meet the needs mm. of the community surrounding us and the nation will know that redeem is about saving lives and reaching yes. souls for Christ. We yes. thank you for it. We give you honor and we give you glory. And we thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Come on, can you give Mama Bertha a big hand? Love you. Thank you. Praise God. How many agree that Bertha is a praying woman? Uh, we are on our sermon series, FAQ. We're in week three. We're going through frequently asked questions. And today's question, who is Jesus? This is probably the most important question that any human being uh, could ever engage in. The consequences of failing to know other famous figures or people in history, they're light in comparison to failing to contemplate and come to the conclusion of who Jesus is. You may fail to know who Alexander the Great was or Gandhi or Frederick Douglass or Harriet Tubman, 
And it might cost you a little bit. It might stunt your growth. You know, knowing history helps you in your present. Those who don't know history are bound to repeat it. And a lot of times that's not positive. It could rob you of some of the benefits afforded to those who bank the valuable lessons that history teaches and the people in history teach. If you don't know famous people, it may cost you a grade in history class or maybe you lose a round in a trivia contest. But when it comes to the person of Jesus, nothing compares and there is no consequence that is more weighty than not knowing or not contemplating or not engaging that question, who is Jesus? And not just from an intellectual perspective, but from an experiential and a personal and relational perspective. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? Jesus himself asked this question to his own disciples. Kind of interesting. I thought it fascinating that they spend all this time with the Lord. They're with him every day. They're seeing miracles. They watched him minister to the outcast and the marginalized healing the sick, saw him confront power, saw him call out religious hypocrites and tear into the church leaders or the leaders of the synagogue, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They watched him and then he asked this question to him in Mark 8, 27, B through 29. And it says, on the way, he asked them, they're at a place called Caesarea Philippi. And I've said this before, that was kind of the red light district of the day. And he takes them down to what would be the worst spot. This is where the gates of hell were, a place literally called the gates of hell. And he says, who do people say that I am? He asked his disciples this. And they told him, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Others say one of the prophets. And then he asked them this, but who do you say that I am? Now, what I love that there's a, there's a profound lesson in this. And although Jesus asked this 2,000 years ago to those 12 disciples, if you are his disciple right here, right now in this room, he's still asking you the same question. And maybe you don't know him. Maybe you've never believed on him. Maybe you've never engaged that question he wants you to hear it right now. There's a lot of people that say lots of things about Jesus and he's making a point. Listen, in this life, you're gonna hear lots of different ideas about who I am, about my meaning, the purpose of my life. But in a sea of opinions, I'm not really so concerned about the multitude of opinions. I'm concerned and I really wanna know what you say I am and who you say I am. Because it doesn't matter what other religions think. It doesn't matter what Bertha's mom thought. It mattered to Bertha's mom, but it only mattered what she thought if she could get Bertha to a place where Bertha at 12 and a half years old contemplated the same question for herself. Because inheritance or salvation cannot be given to you by your parents. It can't be given to you by your nation. It can only be given by God to those who see Jesus as he truly is and who put their faith in the true identity 
of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So this lesson, it continues to reverberate and this question continues to echo all these years and it's still just as vibrant and important of a question today. And you know, it's, it's fascinating because it's pretty amazing that 2,000 years have gone by and billions of people have been weighing in on this same question, including all the religions of the world. Now think about this. This is the most asked question or the most uh, studied or contemplated question when it comes to thinking about any other person. It's who is Jesus? When you look at the other religions of the world, major religions that have millions or some a billion followers, Islam says about Jesus when asked the question, the Quran teaches that Jesus was a holy man, that he was a prophet sent by God. They give him that respect, but they don't see him as the son of God. Buddhism teaches that Jesus was an enlightened teacher, but he wasn't God. Hinduism declares Jesus to be a good and a holy man, a great teacher, and possibly one of the 333 million avatars that they worship, but not God, not the, not the way that the scripture lays it out. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was actually Michael the archangel, and then when he came to earth, they would believe that he turned into this person, Jesus, and then when he ascended, he actually went back to becoming Michael the archangel which changes the whole deity of Christ as one of the Godhead. And it actually nullifies salvation because if he wasn't who he claimed to be and who the Bible says he was, then to receive that Messiah or that version of Jesus is to receive the wrong Jesus. Mormonism teaches that God the Father created Jesus in one of his relationships with a celestial wife that he had in heaven. And that Jesus and Satan are actually brothers equal in nature. So think about this, the problem with that would be that, that Jesus is not a created being. And that we have to understand that the Bible teaches that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And if he was God and is God, then he has no beginning, meaning he wasn't created. Everything else was created through him and for him, but he wasn't a created being. New Age spiritualism teaches that Jesus was enlightened to realize what all of us should realize, that we too are gods. That's the, the belief of the New Age spiritualism movement. So who is Jesus? Well, we know this, whether you're a believer, whether you follow him or not, there's no arguing that hands down, Jesus Christ is the most famous human being in history. And to think that more people have pondered who he is than all others, when he was born to a humble family in a tiny little humble town, he never traveled more than 100 miles from his home. He only lived at 33 years old, and he was a Jewish man, which means he was a part of a very tiny people group who lived under Roman power. And after all of those things that would hinder his legacy going on, yet Jesus is the most famous, most talked about person in history. In fact, our calendars are based off of his birth. 
the Bible that is all about him is the best-selling book in all of history. And Jesus is the most researched person even now on Google. Yet Jesus still asks all of us, aside from the fame, he doesn't want to just take that spot. He, his goal was not to be the most famous or have his book sell. It wasn't his book. It was a book about him. And he is the book. He is the word of God. But that wasn't the goal. The goal was, I want my fame and I want my name to help you answer the question for yourself, who is Jesus? So that you cannot just get the answer, but you can experience the life-transforming reality that that answer brings. Whether you're saved, whether you're not, whether you've been a Christian for many years, like I said, the more I explore this question, the more treasure I find because Jesus is unsearchable. There's always something more to learn about him. There's always a deeper place that I can be in him. And so he asked that question. We hear many ideas, um, some similar to the ones that we heard in this religion example. Uh, good teacher, holy man, sent from God. He was a prophet. Some of these are true. Some of these, he was a prophet. He was a prophet, a priest and a king, the prophet, priest and king. Of course he was a good man. Yes, he was holy. Yes, he was sent from God. But all of these fall short of the realization that the apostle Peter came to when Jesus asked this question. And when he asked the question to his disciples, well, who do you say that I am? Here, Peter pipes up and, and we'll go to the answer that he gave in Matthew 16, but he says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And look at Jesus' response to that. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. What rock? He says, on this rock I'll build my church. What was he talking about? Well, they were at this big rock face, and this was the red light district. I think there's a twofold meaning here. I think part of what he was saying was, I'm going to build my church in, in the place that Satan claims as his greatest epicenter or the capital of evil. Like, I'm going to show that I can build my church in the darkest place. But what he really, the, the main meaning here is the rock was the revelation that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. He said, I will establish my church upon the belief that I am more than a prophet. I'm more than a good man. I'm more than a holy man, but I am the answer that I am God made flesh, that I came and I took on humanity and I gave my life for you. And anyone who puts faith in me shall not per perish, but have eternal everlasting life. This is the very foundation the church is built on. So why do we ask the question? Because it's the same reason we lay a foundation for our house. Because it's what holds us strong in turbulent times. The answer to that, the belief in that, that Jesus is the Christ, that he's God, that he lives in us, that he, he sustains us, that he's the bread of life, that he's our hope. It is the thing that overcomes the enemy. And it's the truth that will pierce the hardest heart should they give God a chance in contemplating that answer for themselves. 
He goes on and says this, upon this rock will I build my church. And then it says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What is it? The church. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. All from this revelation. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God, the Christ, and you put your faith in him, he's saying that you will prevail against hell and that he will give you all authority. And it says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is what the church is built on. No teacher, no prophet, no holy man, no guru has ever forgiven sin. And without the forgiveness of sin, there is no salvation. So it, it, it's great that we respect Jesus as, uh, as a good man and as a great teacher or one sent from God. But that doesn't bring us to the saving knowledge we need or the saving transformation that gets us out of eternal damnation and into everlasting life. No holy man, no prophet has ever forgiven sin. We can forgive each other horizontally, but only God can forgive someone's sin vertically between earth and heaven. No one ever claimed to, even in the Bible, no prophet, no judge, no king, no priest ever claimed they could forgive sin. And this is what got Jesus in trouble with the religious leaders because he basically gives a glimpse of a demonstration of his identity as God when he heals this paralytic in Mark 2, 3 through 12. Check this out. It says that a paralytic was brought to Jesus, carried by four men. Since they were unable to get Jesus through the crowd, they uncovered the roof above him, made an opening, and lowered the paralytic man on the mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting, they were sitting there and they were thinking in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now Jesus knew what was going on, didn't he? Now watch what he does here, I love this. At once Jesus knew in his spirit that they were thinking this way within themselves. And he says, why are you thinking these things in your heart, he asked. Which is easier, to say to a paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Okay, check the setup up. Like, anybody can say, hey, your sins are forgiven, even if it's blasphemous. But to have the power to then say to that crippled man, you know what? Get up, you've been paralyzed, your legs don't work, you're a quadriplegic, get up and walk. What he's doing here is he is confronting their belief that he's blasphemous by claiming to be God in that he claimed to forgive sin. And he backed up his claim by doing what seemed to be the more impossible task, healing a man. So he says, but so that you know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins, which means he is God. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, pick up your mat and go home. And immediately the man got up, picked up his mat, and walked out in front of them all. As a result, they were all astounded and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Jesus is God, and he forgives sins. Why is it important for us to answer that question? Because those who end up in heaven are only those 
who have experienced the forgiveness of God that makes us right with the Father. And Jesus Christ is the only bridge that closes that gap. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? You know, God wanted everyone to know the true answer. And in doing so, and in that desire, he began defining who Jesus is even before Jesus was born. The Old Testament is filled with prophecies about the coming Messiah. And God was giving you a clue. Hey, when he comes, just know that I talked about him through my prophets, prophets who didn't know each other, prophets who couldn't sit down and scheme and write a book that, that somehow dovetailed together, prophets that were experiencing different times in history that all wrote about the coming Messiah who, whose name wasn't quite Jesus yet, but it would be revealed as Jesus. But he would be the Mashiach Nagid. He would be the Messiah and the King. And so he starts to put clues and pointers and foreshadows about this Jesus so that you wouldn't have to come up with your own personal definition that when he came on the scene, you would realize this is the one that was spoken about far before he ever came. Perhaps the oldest prophecy about Jesus and who he would be came 4,000 years before his birth. And ironically, it was given on the exact day that Adam and Eve fell in the garden. Check this out. So this is God declaring the curse or the punishment over the serpent, Satan. And in declaring the curse, he gives a little glimpse or a foretaste or a foreshadow of what Jesus would do and who he would be. And so he said to the serpent, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, Jesus, will crush your head, Satan, and you will strike his heel. This is the day, and on the day that mankind fell was the day that God gave the first glimpse of who Jesus would be. He would be the one that restores us from the fall. He would be the one that brings us out of Adam's race and out of judgment. And he spoke to the serpent on day one of the fall that I'm going to make it right. And yes, you accomplished your mission in deceiving my children away from wholeness and oneness with me. And yes, you broke the relationship, but I declare that there will one day be a man that comes from the womb of a virgin. And you do not get the final say because the seed of the woman will grow up and he will crush your head. He will be the son of God, the Messiah, and he will take back authority and give it to man. Amen. Who is Jesus? Well, he fulfilled 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about who it said he would be. Colossians 1.15 and 16 says this. The son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Let me just pause there. What is God like? I can't get my mind around it. Well, it says here that if you want to know what God the Father is like or what God the Trinity is like, you see it perfectly in the person of Jesus. Read the life and ministry of Christ and you see exactly what God is like. Jesus said, when you see me, you see the Father. It goes on to say this and it says, all things were created through him and for him. So if this is true, if this is part of his identity, 
then even for believers right here, is it important that we revisit that question because if all things were created through him and for him, that means that I was created through him and that I was created for him, meaning that my very existence is intimately tied to Jesus Christ. And if that's the case, then that means that every waking moment of my life, I pray that God would more and more help me to contemplate every motion, every thought, every word, every deed, every choice, every direction, every day through the lens of Lord God, may this very second be my expression of faith and love, knowing that I was created for you. And the very breath that I breathe is only given by you. And so this next breath, I live and I breathe for you. And the next breath I give in honor and glory for you. Whatever I do, that I do it with all my heart as unto the Lord who I was created for. John 1.1, 1, 1, I love this. It says, in the beginning was the word. Who is Jesus? Well, it says that he is the, in, the visible image of the invisible God, but it also says that he's the word. And I, uh, this is so beautiful because John takes us back to the very beginning. He ties in this answer of who Jesus is. And he says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. So in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then in John, skip down 13 verses, it says, and the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Can I get an amen and thank you, Jesus? Right, he didn't, he didn't deal with us from a distance. We, we serve God with skin on. We serve the God who took on our humanity and he moved into our plight. He says, he moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes. And John is speaking firsthand experience. The one of a kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. So let's look at what John was referring to when he said, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And I'm going to have the band come up. Um, and we're going to close in a song after I conclude here. But what he was talking about was Genesis. And he's talking about creation. So if we go to Genesis 1, and I know this is a lot of teaching, but I want us to get a deeper revelation, not just about Jesus the Savior, but Jesus, the one we're in relationship with and the one we're called to continue to walk with. It says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So there's God. We believe that God is triune. He's one God who demonstrates himself in three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. What does this mean? It means that God is a relational being. Because if there was only one singular God, there could be no relationship uh, in the universe if God was just by himself before any, anything was created. But the fact that God exists within community means that it is true when God says that God is love. And, and it's true that when we were created, we were created to know him and to love him. And we were also created as his body to be in relationship with one another, to be in his what? His likeness and his image. What is his likeness and image? It is a relational image and likeness. 
And so we have Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God, creator of the heavens and the earth. Now check this out. Now the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And now look at the Trinity right here in the very beginning. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You have the Holy Spirit. And then God said, everybody say God said. So you see in scripture, the Father is initiation, Jesus is implementation, and the Holy Spirit is administration or helps. You see this beautiful harmony. God initiated, and what did he do? When he wanted to create, Spirit of God is hovering, waiting to act, waiting to help, waiting to move. The Father says, let there be light. And the Bible says that God is the, Jesus is the word, so the said is Jesus. The Father sends forth his what? His word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. Did we not just see this? The word was God. All things were made through him and for him. I got chills. I don't know about you. We get to be in relationship with this Jesus. A Jewish person would say, hi, you're worshiping more than one God. No, I'm not. In your very text, we see the Trinity in line number one. Holy Spirit, God the Father declaring, and the said became the Savior when he put on human flesh. Who is Jesus? He's the Word of God. He's the visible image of the invisible God. So he is all of those things. But then this is like the power punch that just knocks the enemy flat when we get it. He says in Exodus 3, 13 and 14. Now remember, this is 1,400 years before Jesus actually was born. And I pray, to, I pray that God would let you see this right here. Jesus isn't even a thought. Now Messiah is talked about. But we have 1,400 years before he's born and God's having a conversation with Moses. Moses was a type of Christ. Like he was an example of Jesus as a deliverer of the people. Moses says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And here's what God says to Moses. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Well, what's your name? They're going to ask me who you are. I am what I am. Now, this is kind of funny because I couldn't help but hear Robert De Niro's voice here like this Italian mob boss, like, I am who I am. What is that? I am who I am. It is what it is. What are you going to do? Okay. So I apologize. I'm going to forever see this verse. God has an Italian Brooklyn accent here. So he goes on and he says this, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. Now, what a weird name. Please follow me. Tell them I am sent you. What does this mean? Now, if you pronounce this in the Hebrew, this is where we get the word Yahweh. No consonants. Just, it's, it's like, almost like just breath and spirit. Yahweh. So, what, so to say I am in Hebrew is literally to pronounce Yahweh. Well, who sent you? Yahweh. So what he told me to say, Yahweh. Now, what does this mean? Why is this important? This name, although it means a lot more than what I'm going to share, it communicates especially that God has no beginning. God has no end. I am. I just am. I've always been. I will always be. 
No one voted me in, no one can vote me out. Oh, you can hate on me and you can mock me and, and you can try and drive me out of society and out of media. You can try and remove me from schools. You can try and ban me from society. But I promise you this, I am and I will always be. I'm the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. In fact, the more you try to push me out, the more I show off I am, right? The more darkness increases, the greater the light. And where, where sin pulls up in the lowest places and where the gates of hell flex to be the most intimidating, those are the places Jesus shows up and declares, I am, I am, I am who I am. His name signifies no beginning, no end. It signifies that he's all sufficient. He's all powerful. He's all knowing. No one can give him advice. He loves you. He wants you, but he don't need you. Okay. Now, you know, trust me. I heard a pastor say one time, he goes, I was talking to Jesus and Jesus said to me, I'm having such a bad day. Would you just please come hang out with me? I'm like, are you kidding me right now? You think Jesus needs you to hang out with him to have a good day? He, I love the saying, you've heard it before from the revival preachers, God is God all by himself and he don't need no one else, right? But he wants someone else because he's love, right? I am, he is independent, he's all powerful. Everything created was from him and for his glory. So that's what Moses said to the people and here's the dagger to the enemy. I love this. So fast forward now 1400 years, Jesus is on the scene. He's 33 years old. He's at the end of his life on earth and he's in the garden of Gethsemane. One of his boys betrays him for 30 pieces of silver. Judas filled with Satan ends up working a deal with these religious leaders to get him arrested. Later regrets what he does, hung himself. But in the process, Judas leads these soldiers to the garden where there's Jesus in agony as fully man, fully God, sweating great drops of blood. How many have ever been stressed out? Raise your hand. How many have ever been so stressed out you feel like you're going to lose your mind? Come on, be honest with me. How many have been so stressed out that like you literally are debilitated paralyzed and all you can do is lay in bed no matter what it costs you. Like, I can't move, I'm too stressed. Listen, as stressed out as that was, it doesn't touch the stress Jesus felt. The Bible says that he sweat great drops of blood. He was so stressed, wrestling with this, the, the wrath being poured that the, the, the blood vessels begin to burst under his skin and, and, and blood started to seep out of his pores. That's stress. And yet in this stress, they come to arrest him. And God shows up in a very miraculous way. And Jesus kind of flexes his identity right here again. John, then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, when the soldiers asked, they were looking for him to, to arrest him. He went forward and asked them, tells the soldiers, who are you looking for? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus told them, I am. Have you heard this before? Now watch this. He says to them, Yahweh. Now that's a normal response. You're literally answering the question. But 
Yahweh, or I am, wasn't just a response if it came from Jesus. It was actually his name, if he was who he claimed to be. So Jesus told them, I am. They backed away and they fell to the ground. Kind of a strange scenario for answering a question. Here's what I believe happened. I believe that in this moment, God, just for a split second, allowed the power of his name and the power of his identity to be felt by those who came to arrest him. And in doing so, he gives us a glimpse that no man takes his life, he lays it down willingly. Because at the mention of my name, demons tremble and soldiers fall on the ground. Because I am is the one you're looking for. Go ahead and put the chains on me. I'll march to the cross, not because you have more power than me, but because I want to gain back power for those who lost it in the Garden of Eden. Now in the Garden of Gethsemane, I'm declaring that I'm turning everything around. I am is on the scene. Amen. And then finally, I love this. Who is Jesus? How do you describe the indescribable God? And I want you just to see which name connects with you. The Holy Spirit might just highlight one of these and I just wanna read through them. This is a long list, but I only took some of it for the sake of time. God's word has a lot of ways to describe Jesus because there's, other than I am, which you could talk for years about what that means. There's, there's no way to fully get your mind around all that he is with just one title. And so the scripture from cover to cover has to use all these different titles and all these different symbols to help us try and get a glimpse of all that Jesus is. So here's a few things that the Bible says that Jesus is. Jesus is our advocate. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. The Bible says that Jesus is the bread of life. He's the bridegroom and we are the bride. He's the chief cornerstone. He's our mighty deliverer. The Bible says that Jesus is the, the faithful and true witness. He's the good shepherd. Jesus is our great high priest. He's Emmanuel, which means God with us. How many are so glad that we have a God who is with us even now. He's called the King of Kings. He's the Lamb of God, the only sacrifice that could have taken away sin. He is the light of the world. He's our mediator. The Bible says in Revelation that he's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's our hope. He's our Redeemer. He's our risen Lord. Jesus is our rock, Bertha mentioned. He is our savior. He's the true vine. You might've got connected to the vine, but I promise you this, the Bible says that he continues to be your source of life. So abide in him. He is the vine. He is the victorious one. To me, he was the one who rescued me out of depression when I was 17 years old with a dad slamming heroin into his arm. A young man who was drinking himself into false peace at two in the morning looking for hope who woke up empty and scared, full of anger that had no direction. 
I didn't know who Jesus was other than some religious figure. But then I found out who he was and when I did, I realized that I had hit the ultimate lottery because I found my savior, my best friend, my redeemer, my deliverer, the one who walks with me and talks with me, the one who sticks closer than a brother. I don't know who he is for you, but I know he's changed my life. And if you'll draw near to him and let that question call you closer, God will continue to fill you with more of himself. Can you give him praise today if you love him? And finally, 2 Corinthians 9, 15, I mentioned this earlier, calls Jesus and says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Who is that? He's talking about Jesus. He is more than words could ever describe. But more importantly, God became one of us to rescue us who would repent of our sin and turn to him and believe on him as the savior. If you wanna ask Jesus, here's what he said about himself. John 4, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Everybody say no one. Last I checked in the Greek, it actually means no one, right? What does this mean? It means there are not many roads that lead to eternal life. There's one door, there's one way, there's one name that is above every name and his name is Jesus Christ. I love, we were in men's group and Jordan said, it's been sticking with me all week. I probably shared this with him earlier and he just requoted me. Um, no, he says, uh, you notice that Jesus didn't say, I am the destination. Now, I mean, in essence he is, but he said, I'm the way, I'm the life. It's not like, hey, you got to Jesus and it's over. A destination says that there's like finality, but when Jesus says, I'm the way and the life, it, it says that there's continuality, if that's a word, right? It means that it's ongoing, it's daily, it's a relationship, right? So Jesus is the exclusive door that God invites all to find eternal life through. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes with me today. This is a very simple call, but I don't want your religious minds to kick in and distract you from receiving what he has for you because this isn't like some course that you can conquer. Oh, I've memorized it all. There's nothing more to learn or experience. No, you haven't even scratched the surface yet. And so Jesus the prophet doesn't get you to heaven. Jesus the holy man or the teacher, that doesn't cut it. Unless he is the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God, who became a man, lived a perfect sinless life, died on the cross, took your sin upon himself, rose from the dead to conquer death, hell, and the grave and prove that he is the author of life, ascended to heaven, sent his Holy Spirit. He says, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Listen, being a good person doesn't save you. Having a fondness of God doesn't save you. It's only when I say, Jesus, I believe that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And I want reconciliation with God. If you're here today and you say, you know what, I don't know that I, I can't say for sure 
that I've made a decision to believe on Jesus as the only door to salvation. And today, I don't want to just know about Jesus. I want to experience deep relationship with him. And I want to be connected to that life-giving vine. I want Jesus Christ to forgive my sins and secure my eternity. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if that's you today and you say, either for the first time, or maybe you need to rededicate your life and you need to make a fresh commitment. If, if that is you and God's tugging on your heart and you feel like he's speaking to you, I want you to raise your hand and say, today, that's me. Just hold it up high, unashamed. Thank you, there, there, one, two. Hold them up high, three, four, five, six, seven, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. Anyone else? 13, thank you so much. Give a couple more seconds. Young man, 14, thank you. Young, young lady, thank you. 15, praise God. Come on, can we give Jesus a big hand for those who responded this morning? So here's what we're gonna do. If you raise your hand to receive Christ, number one, if you've got nothing going on this Wednesday night, come to Alpha, 6.30. You can find out more information at the Connect Center. This is what it's for to deepen your relationship with Jesus and get integrated into community. So please sign up for that. But for the rest of us, for all of us, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna stand to our feet. We haven't closed service yet. But during this time, we're gonna rededicate, whether we're right with him or not. And just during this next song, can we make a fresh commitment to be everything that we can be for the one who gave all for us? So if you need to do business with God, find a place at this altar, pour your heart out, talk to God about issues that have been a hindrance in your life and let's worship him. And then I'll come up to close us and we'll send you out. We'll receive the offering, let you give on your way out. But uh, let's everybody pour our hearts out and worship for the next few moments. Thank you. Yeah, so when, when Dave asked, who is Jesus to me? Like immediately all I could think of is Jesus is love. Right, because for, for me, that's who he is. Jesus is the ultimate and complete, absolute definition of love to me. And I think this week, and I'll embarrass her, this week it'll be 22 years since I asked my wife to marry me. And uh, as much as I loved her then, and I love her now, and as much as she loves me, and I love my children, and they love me back, none of that pales in comparison to the love that Jesus feels for me yeah. and that he feels for you. And the great thing is, is, you know, I wake up in the morning, he loves me. I go to bed, he loves me. Yes. Right? I, I have a horrible day at work. He loves me. Yeah. I have a great day at work. He loves me. Yeah. Somehow miraculously managed to do something the way that he wants me to do it. He loves me. Yes. And when I absolutely completely go against what it is he wants me to do, he still loves me. Yes. And that is Jesus to me. So let's sing about his love. Yes.